From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. Kate Anderson Brower is my guest. She's the author of several books, including The Residence, Inside the Private World of the White House, First Women, The Grace and Power of America's Modern First Ladies, First in Line, Presidents, Vice Presidents, and the Pursuit of Power, and Team of Five, The President's Club in the Age of Trump. She has contributed to many magazines and newspapers and news outlets. Her new book is something a little different. It's a biography of one of the most beautiful and famous women who ever lived. The book is called Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon. Kate Anderson Brower, welcome to From the Bookshelf. Thanks for having me, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here. I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time, so thank you for for being here. Uh, You know, it might seem like this book is kind of a left turn, but... The life of Elizabeth Taylor is pretty political. It has a lot of, especially the sort of the last act that I read uh, also in the excerpt that in the recent issue of Vanity Fair. So it's not a, it's not like you went from politics to show business necessarily. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, there's very few celebrities like Elizabeth Taylor who do um, kind of check off all the boxes of what I was looking for in terms of an interesting, fascinating woman who. Uh, really defined our our ideal of beauty, I think, in the 20th century, the latter half of the 20th century. And then um, also a woman who transformed celebrity. I mean, she was the first major entrepreneur when she launched White Diamonds and Passion, you know. And But to me, it was always her AIDS work. Um, as a child of the 80s, I, I remembered you know, hearing about AIDS all the time. We don't hear about it as much anymore, but just how radioactive an issue that was when, you know, Ryan White wasn't able to go to school and all of that. And I I didn't realize the extent of what Elizabeth did. And so that was, um, I think, really important to give her the credit she deserves for, for leading the movement, at least as a Hollywood celebrity, um, uh, you know, to try to eradicate AIDS. I, I think that uh, readers will be surprised to read the extent of her uh, activism there. Um, I mean, to me, one of the most interesting things about her is the way that her career spans these three decades of of change in America, the 40s when we first saw her, the 50s when um, she became a movie star, uh, and the 60s with the the end of the studio system and the production code. And she was in, you know, she was one of the leaders in that with who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, I I can't think of any other actress that plays such an important role in those three eras. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, national velvet is when she first came on to, to become a household name. And that was in 1944. And so you're right. You think of somebody who is relevant in the forties, fifties, sixties, I would say 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000. I mean, she just, her fame spanned all of those decades. But to your point, her last film was The Flintstones. In right, yeah. um, which An unfortunate not, choice, perhaps. Yeah. You go from a place in the sun to The Flintstones. Um, yeah. And I think that's kind of indicative, too, of what she was up against as an older woman in Hollywood. You know, she, I don't think that it was cynical that she took on the AIDS um 
activist movement, but I think she could see the writing on the wall when she was in her even 40s and 50s, knowing that she wasn't going to get the roles that she got as this this young bombshell, you know, actress. And so she pivoted and she changed her life. And I, in the process, she changed the world. Also in the 40s and leading up to there in the 20s, 30s, 40s, film magazines supported the studios and helped build movie stars. And then with Confidential Magazine and the like in the 50s, uh, it was more like the magazines and the media became uh, uh, an adversary. And she was one of the people who I think was treated so unkindly. I mean, today, I guess it just happens all the time. Every time anybody's on TV, people talk about if they were fat or not fat or whatever. But um, But she really got made fun of. I think, you know, her weight was such a topic of discussion. I mean, Joan Rivers dedicated entire stand-up routines to it, you know. Um, and Elizabeth was never really that heavy. I mean, she was 5'2", and if she weighed 150 or 160 pounds, that was a big deal. We're not talking about an enormous woman, but the way the media just took her down, and I... I was stunned watching. I like to think that we've moved forward on this a bit. You, we have stars like Lizzo and people who are more um, accepting of different body types. But I was going back and seeing these interviews that Elizabeth did in the 70s where she's married to Senator John Warner. And and the reporter just says, so, Elizabeth, you've gotten fat, you know. Oh <laughs> he, he says the word fat. Yeah, to her face. And she just says, you know, I what I do with my body is for me only, you know, she has to constantly defend herself. This is to her face. And um, and then I was also thinking not only the fat shaming, but even though she wasn't actually that fat, in my opinion, um, it's it's the sexism that she faced when she came, you know, for breaking up Eddie Fisher's marriage, for breaking up Richard Burton's marriage, the idea that she was this kind of I, you know, homewrecker. Uh, yeah, homewrecker, promiscuous woman. And she had to stand up for herself. And I don't think she felt badly. I don't think she wanted, she didn't see the need to apologize for it at the time, which is amazing. Well, it is interesting, uh, you know, the, the idea that someone would be married eight times, seven husbands, eight marriages, right? And um, is it because... I mean, she liked to collect things. She collected jewelry. <laughs> but um, is it because in the era in which she came of age, uh, pre-birth control, you, you had to get married? Yes. And the idea was that any man she slept with, she felt she had to marry. That wasn't entirely true. That's what she said. I mean, she did have affairs with people like Frank Sinatra, who she obviously didn't marry. Um, but I think she had this sense that, you know, she had to fulfill this obligation. And I think she saw marriage as a way to escape the reality of her life. You know, she could become Mrs. John Warner, Mrs. Richard Burton. I think she wanted, it was interesting. I talked to her um, a really good friend, Tim Mendelson, who was her assistant for 20 years. And he said, she wanted some man to help her with the business of being Elizabeth Taylor. It wasn't necessarily, in his opinion, escape, although I, I think it was a combination, but it was, she felt like she needed that support and she never found it. She never found the man that could take on her level of fame. 
Uh, yeah, I guess it's kind of like class royalty issue. I mean, if someone is as famous as Elizabeth Taylor, yeah. how do you marry Larry Fortensky? <laughs> you you kind of need like a Prince Philip, you know? You need somebody who, I'm thinking of Queen Elizabeth and that relationship, somebody who's going to, now I don't know if you watch The Crown or not. But, oh, yeah, uh, The Crown. And uh, it seems like they lived, you know, there was obviously a lot, and I know it's not historically accurate, but it seems like their relationship was all about his support of her. And, you know, they had separate lives, but um, Elizabeth never found that person who could be in her shadow. I think Richard Burton was jealous of her. You know, she won an Oscar for Virginia Woolf and he didn't. He wouldn't, he didn't want her to go to the Oscars, to collect her Oscar. And she didn't, which I still think is Wow. Kind of a testament to how much she loved him, because that's unlike her not to have stood up for herself and say it, she was going to go anyway. She Was she there to accept her Butterfield 8 award? Yes, she was. She was. And she had this, you know, the scar from her tracheotomy. Shirley MacLaine lost to her and said, I lost to a tracheotomy, right? It's like yeah. Butterfield 8. Have you seen it recently? It's it's not one of her best. Not very movies. good. No. But uh, I remember at the time, really thinking, you know, my 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 mother was saying that it's a it's a sympathy award. They said, at the yeah, time. yeah. And she said, you know, there's no deodorant like success. And so suddenly, <laughs> she, you know, nobody would touch her. No one wanted to talk to her. She had friends not returning her phone calls because of the whole Eddie Fisher scandal and then suddenly she wins an academy award and she's on top of the world people love her you know suddenly she almost dies and people love her so i think she was a cynic has there ever been a a personality as close to death as many times (laughs) as elizabeth taylor probably not and survived right she's a a phoenix rising from the (laughs) the ashes yeah yeah and uh, you know i mean you you kind of draw a parallel in in your book to Jackie uh, Kennedy because the grieving widow the the role of the grieving widow which was totally legitimate in the case of Mike Todd and Elizabeth Taylor uh, was kind of a uh, template for for Jackie in 1963. Well, I I never realized you know what Elizabeth had been through at such a young age. She was 26 twice divorced, once widowed, three children. I mean, that's a 26-year-old woman. Now it's it's unlikely that she would even be married once in our, you know, society today, let alone have all the burden. And she also had amazing, obviously, a wonderful life in many ways. But I, um, the extent of the trauma of his death and how sudden it was, he died in the plane crash. They were just been married for a little over a year. And I think she really did feel like he was finally somebody who could um, meet her where she, where she needed a man to meet her because he was so uh, bombastic and, you know, this famous producer, a mover and shaker, and and also very passionate. And uh, I think she was kind of darkly attracted to men that could be physically abusive. And I think she liked that a little bit. She liked the passion um, and he gave that to her. So I think she had PTSD after that, for sure. Just like Jackie, because your husband suddenly dies, you're young and you're kind of left rudderless. And for someone who has PTSD to constantly have paparazzi jumping out at you and taking pictures of yeah. you must be, um, I mean, it's not, 
it's not something that you and I have ever experienced. Well, maybe you have, but um, <laughs> yeah, this, this fact that people want to take your picture all the time and they're stalking you, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it was really interesting to me to see that her publicist, John Springer, was also Marilyn Monroe's publicist. And he said that um, Marilyn could, you know, put on a hat and sunglasses and walk down the street in New York. But Elizabeth and Richard tried to go from the Regency Hotel on Park Avenue to Central Park. This is like two blocks, you know, and they couldn't. They were just mobbed. He said it was like the Pied Piper, people coming out of everywhere following them. They couldn't go anywhere. And I think that Richard got so sick of it. And I I found a letter that Richard wrote to her where he said, you know, this is after they got divorced the first time. And he said, I went into a store and I bought something with my own money and nobody bothered me. It was so liberating. I think he was just so sick of that circus around her. And it's all she knew. We're talking with Kate Anderson Brower, and she has just written a new book called Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon. It's it's really a um, a mammoth undertaking, this book. And I, I wonder, you know, you were just mentioning that you held in your hand letters that Richard Burton wrote to Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, how How did you come to write this book and what were the resources that you had available to you? Um, I started, I, I, it came about, I was lucky that I got to know John Warner, her sixth husband. I lived in DC. He, uh, lives like 10 minutes, uh, from where I live. And so I thought it would be so interesting to maybe do an article, um, a magazine story or something about, uh, you know, this former Senator and what it was like in the seventies being married to the most famous movie star in the world. And he said, you know, I think that the trustees would like, and Elizabeth's family would like someone to write a book about her life. Um, and he put me in touch with them. And they, it was just a, it was good timing. It was a decade after she had passed away. And it took them a long time to, uh, you know, come to grips with the idea of like laying bare a lot of her problems. Although I think a lot of people already know about <laughs> the struggle she had with addiction and, uh, you know, the many divorces, she obviously did not lead a per nobody does. And she would never have wanted a watered down boring version of her life. So the family said they would give me access during COVID. I went through a lot of, uh, I went out to Beverly Hills and met with them. They have a, an office that where they have costumes, her old costumes. They have an archivist who works there who meth just methodically um, cataloged all of her letters from when she was a child in England until her death. And so it, it was uh, incredible that a lot of it was also online. So I was able to do some of it uh, from home, which was great. Uh, yeah. So usually when we hear of something being an authorized biography, it usually means that 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 the warts will be uh, glossed over. Did anybody have editorial, uh, I don't know, power over what you were doing? Thankfully, no. I, I usually, if you say authorized, I think people might think it's boring, right? You yeah. might think. <laughs> um, no, they, you know, they did get to see her, her uh, grandson, her assistant and her lawyer, got to see the manuscript and there were a couple of things that we went back and forth on, but it was mostly greenlit and they said, you know, we, uh, we trust your, your judgment and uh, 
But yeah, it was definitely a, an interesting process too, because her life was so complicated. She had four kids, like you said, married eight times to seven men. So I would be talking to her grandson, who is Mike Todd's grandson, about whether or not Mike Todd was the love of her life. I think it was Richard Burton, and I, most people do think it was Richard Burton. But obviously, when you're talking to her grandson, he he has an affinity for that storyline, although he wouldn't debate it. I think that the jury's out. There's no doubt going through the love letters between Richard and Elizabeth that that was uh, all-consuming, passionate, fraught relationship. And we don't have the same evidence because it just doesn't exist between Mike and Elizabeth because they weren't together that long. And their age difference was considerable, whereas... uh... Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor were contemporaries. I think that's, I, yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, Mike Todd had a son who either was a year older or a year younger than Elizabeth. So that's pretty <laughs> shocking. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that marriage didn't end in divorce. But knowing Elizabeth Taylor, it might have. If I mean, I didn't, you know. You can't speculate about the, such things because. History. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? But we do know that they were, you know, Debbie Reynolds talked about seeing them hit each other. And so there was a volatility there that if they had stayed together, who knows what would have happened? There was a level of violence between them. I mean, Elizabeth would hit him and he would hit her back. And she just, you know, she lit, she drank a lot. She did take pain medicine. She lived this huge life. And I think she was so used to being on stage and having that level of drama that it was hard for her to go off stage and have like a quiet life. Even though she always said that's what she wanted, I can't imagine that she would have ever really wanted it. Right. Yeah. And, and there's also this thing about, and it comes up a few times in 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 your in your book, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, the grit and glamour of an icon, that she likes fighting with men and she likes them to hit her or she likes to hit them so they can have makeup sex. But do you think that, that there's something, I mean, you, you talked about abuse in her past that led her to maybe um, feel this way. Yeah. I mean, she was, uh, her father physically abused her. I'm not sure how many times, but I know at least once she talked about it. Um, where he, she was a, you know, 12 years old and he was so, I, I think her father just had so many demons, personal demons. And then he, he felt like her mother, Sarah, who was the ultimate kind of stage mother was keeping Elizabeth from him. And then Elizabeth was, you know, making more money than he was. And at one point, uh, Elizabeth said that he swung her around by her hair and hit her and she had lockjaw the rest of her life. I mean, it was very traumatic for her. And, I, I, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but you have to think there's some connection there to the abuse that she seemed to seek out in some relationships later in life. I mean, Larry Fortensky was not, you know, the best husband to her either. Richard wasn't the best husband. Eddie Fisher uh, held a gun to her head at one point when they were in Rome doing Cleopatra. He was so jealous of her affair with uh, Richard Burton that he said, you're too beautiful to kill, you know? And 
I mean, stories like that make you think that she there was a certain kind of man that she uh, was attracted to. Awful men. <laughs> well, I mean, the, her second husband, the best of the bunch, Michael Wilding, she, a British actor, the father of two of her children, she said was boring. I mean, in the end, she just wanted... You know, she she had her limits. Nikki Hilton, her first husband, they were married for eight, less than a year, and he was terribly abusive to her, a, a raging alcoholic. I mean, huge problems, and so she did not put up with that. But she needed, she wanted some drama, but it wasn't. She wasn't going to be someone's punching bag or a victim. You know. Well, uh, Kate Anderson Brower, when you were working on this uh, book, and. Um, I'm, I don't want to say that it's a gigantic book because I don't want people to think that it's not readable. I mean, it's a, it's a page turner, but it is a considerable work. It's, you know, I don't know, 300 and something, 400 pages. Yeah, it's pretty long. Her life was pretty big. That was my issue, trying to... <laughs> trying she lived, to live she lived a long life. Yeah. But um, who did you talk to? So I interviewed more than 250 people for the book, including um, her four children who haven't talked to a journalist uh, at any length um, to, uh, you know, directors who worked with her to actors like Demi Moore, who knew her and John Travolta. Um, and then, you know, to your point earlier about how big her life was, I also talked to Dr. Fauci about her because she toured the NIH with him. And during the AIDS um, crisis, she was there looking at different drugs they were developing. So she was somebody who was just, she knew so many people, touched so many lives. And to me, it was the things that she did behind the scenes, like the um, the work that she did with uh, going to AIDS hospices. And so I interviewed um, people who were there at the hospice when she would come to visit and just hearing them describe, I mean, there was no press there at the time and she wouldn't go on a hospice visit if there was going to be press. And she would go into each of the rooms and this was in the mid 80s, mid to late 80s, there was no really effective um, treatments and the turnover in these AIDS hospices of these men who were at like the prime of their lives in their 20s uh, suffering and dying with no hope. And, and it was really incredible to hear how she would connect with them and how, um, you know, she wanted them to see a movie star, you know, so she would get all done up. She would have the giant 33 carat crook diamond on, take it off and let them try it on if they wanted to. One of the, the men said he woke up from a, a dream and he said, I dreamed that Elizabeth Taylor was here. You know, he said he woke up from sleeping and the nurse said, no, she actually was here earlier. You fell asleep <laughs> after, but she was here. Um, and, and it's not only the sort of sweet sentimentality of it, it's also the brass tacks, like the actual things she was bringing, because she would go on a perfume tour, she would stop it in a department store, she would find the hospice in that city, and she would have her assistant do it, but she would go visit the hospice, and then she would give this hospice an amount of money, and she would have Macy's match the amount of money, and then she would have the perfume company match it. So she was tripling whatever she was giving just because for her, it was always about the patient care. It was, you know, when she was working with Matilda, Dr. Krim at Amphar, it was about making sure that these, these men, mostly men at the time, but there were women too, obviously, um, 
you know, could have their dogs walked and could go to, you know, get dental care and, you know, had it had enough to eat in their refrigerators if they could be home at, for a period of time. I mean, these things. And then I was interested in Dr. Krim and how for her, there was this, because Elizabeth was a co-founder of Amphar, uh, there was this tension between them because Dr. Krim wanted to find a cure. And that was where all the money she wanted all the money to go to the science and Elizabeth wanted the money to go to science, but also to making the lives of these people tolerable in their final days. And so, you know, you could see an argument for both of those things. Um, it was such a desperate time. And um, so I, I learned a lot working on that part of the book. There was another uh, former actor who um, had been an actor in the golden age of Hollywood who, um, was important, and I forget his name. Oh yeah, Ronald Reagan, and um, she she put some pressure on Reagan to, uh, <laughs> to talk. Yeah. About yeah, she did. I mean, she used that relationship with Ronald and Nancy. Nancy Reagan was more amenable to. She had a lot of gay friends, you know. Um, she was uh, pushing him a little bit more to listen to advisors that were a bit more socially liberal, but neither one of them did any anywhere near enough because you had the cases starting in the early 80s, 81, and Ronald Reagan doesn't talk at it about AIDS at any length until the Potomac dinner in 1987. So these are years of, of just not acknowledging it and not um, having it even be like a punchline uh, among the press. It's, there's a press conference and Ronald Reagan's press secretary made some joke about AIDS that was very insensitive and homophobic. And, and for Elizabeth, she had so many gay friends. And so there are these letters that in her um, archive that I found where she's just saying, you know, please, please reconsider, please do this. And Nancy Reagan's going back to her saying, you know, we can't do everything. We're <laughs> asking a lot. Um but finally, she Elizabeth visited Ronald Reagan in the Oval Office and just, she said, kind of flirted her way into getting him to finally talk about it. And But she constantly wanted them to give more money and she would go to the Hill and bring these, which is very funny, lavender note cards with notes to senators. And, you know, she would spritz her white diamonds on it and leave it at offices. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so you, men you mentioned... Uh... Kate Anderson Brower, you mentioned that, that she had a lot of gay friends and, of course, three uh, prominent men in her life, uh, Montgomery Clift and James Dean and Rock Cuts and two of her co-stars in many of her best films, um, she and Rock Hudson and James Dean in Giant and, of course, with Montgomery Clift, Place in the Sun and Braintree County. Uh what did those men, how did she become involved with Montgomery Cliff? What did those men mean to her? And uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, I think George Stevens, the director of A Place in the Sun, is really the person who put her in Montgomery Cliff's kind of line of sight. You know, they were cast together. It was one of her first really serious films. And um, she and... Montgomery Clift really hit it off. And I describe how he he was very reticent about um about her. He thought, God, this this because there was an age difference there of several years. And Montgomery Clift had been a stage actor and a serious actor, very moody, 
neurotic person, gorgeous, absolutely beautiful. And the two of them together, I think just complement each other so well because they're, they're two sides of the coin and um, male and female beauty. But, um, he thought she would be like a flipperty gidget, silly little 17 year old girl. And he just loves that. She was a foul mouthed, funny, witty, you know, she was swore like a sailor Mm -hmm. and uh, she could be self-deprecating. He called her Bessie May. And she said, why do you call me that? And he said, because I'm the only one who can, you know, and they had a really sweet, very flirtatious relationship. And I think if he had been straight, she probably would have, you know, wanted to marry him. I think she loved him and was very attracted to him. But as she said, you don't always fry the fish you want to fry. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of gay men in her life who I think she would have loved to, you know, had a romantic relationship with, but it wasn't going to happen. And and Rock Hudson, they had a long friendship. They did. And that, that came from Giant. They uh, starred in Giant together, amazing film. And they just, um, again, a George Stevens film that brought them together. And... Um, James Dean, um, who, of course, was another co-star in that film, they had this really interesting setup in Marfa, Texas, this tiny town where it was James Dean, Rock Hudson, and Elizabeth, and they each had these tiny little bungalows, and they would go in between, and there was kind of a love triangle, you know, it was like Rock and James Dean fighting for Elizabeth's attention, Um, and she loved them both, you know, Rock Hudson was very jealous of James Dean, thought he was stealing the movie, and guess what? He was. <laughs> he was, right? <laughs> um, and so much so that when James Dean died, Rock Hudson felt bad because he had kind of been, he really hated him for a while, but he didn't want any, he didn't want that to happen. You know, it was so traumatic. And, um, but Elizabeth and Rock stayed friends for, you know, until he died. And I, I think that was obviously one of the reasons why she got involved in AIDS, but she was working on the um, Commitment to Life Dinner, which was the first major fundraiser um, for AIDS uh, in the world. And this was in LA in 85. She was working on that before she knew that Rock had AIDS. She thought he had cancer, like everyone else. Right. I mean, it was kind of a brave moment for him to finally come out yeah he really i mean that's incredibly brave yeah yeah well you know this book is really more of a personal biography than a professional biography that is you don't talk about each film you talk about the major films but there are a lot of films in, in her career and did you did you watch them all i did i watched every single one <laughs> and, and, and do you feel you know, I think there's certain actors who are recognized as great actors. When you look at the body of their work, there's not enough great stuff. I think that's true of Marlon Brando, for instance. You know, I mean, you know, he's the greatest actor maybe of all time. And yet there's really a handful of films that are fantastic. And a lot of them are really awful. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of Elizabeth Taylor movies that are not particularly interesting or that they're great movies, but that she is... Uh, well, like I love Father of the Bride and and Father's Little Dividend, the sequel. Those are run, wonderful movies, but they're Spencer Tracy movies, really. Yeah, and yeah. She- I, mean, I think there's enough 
there's a, there are enough amazing, great films to outweigh, in my opinion, the clunkers, which are, you know, the driver's seat, boom, these movies that are not among the best, um, the VIPs, you know, movies that are just kind of clearly done for the paycheck, I think. Um, and there was an enormous uh, paycheck and there was an enormous sort of um, empire to support because she had, you know, she had so many assistants and hairdressers and she was like a little mini industry herself. So she needed the money. And I mean, she also lived so lavishly. It was so over the top. I mean, the, the jewelry and the living on a yacht and everything. But as far as the films go, I think, you know, A Place in the Sun, Giant, um, Virginia Woolf, they they kind of make up. And the last time I saw Paris is also good. Um, those films are so good that they make up for some of the clunkers. And Lassie come home. And, yeah. Uh, and, and, and National and, Velvet. And National Velvet. Yeah. Those are wonderful. And yeah, I mean. It's a beautiful little girl. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, yeah, there were, there were a lot of movies that were not the best, but <laughs> she was kind of a, she was such an, an industry unto herself. She was famous for being famous. And she's one of the first people I think to ever claim that you also have suddenly last summer cat on a hot tin roof. I mean, so many huge, important movies that film critics love um, and that show her range. I mean, how she was able to do films that were really ahead of their time. I think Virginia Woolf is my favorite just because it's just an incredible performance. Right. So uncomfortable to watch. It really is. It feels very contemporary. I mean, it doesn't feel like an old movie at all. And shot in black and white on purpose to to have a, a, a seriousness to it. And she chose Mike Nichols. She and Richard Burton had the rare ability to do that. They were given that. That was how big they were. And I think that's really unusual for an actor to get to pick their director. And nobody believed Mike Nichols could do it. And nobody believed that she could do it. I think looking back on it now, people don't realize how young she was when she played that part. Oh, my God. She aged herself like a decade. And she joked that she had to gain weight, which was her favorite, favorite <laughs> role. Um, but people underestimated her. And I found a, a letter between Mike Nichols and Ernest Lehman, who was a producer on the film. And, um, you know, they're going back and forth in this letter, letters to each other. And. Mike says, I don't think Elizabeth is going to be able to pull this off. I think Richard is is going to steal the show. And I, I thought that was just so, and then Paul Newman saying, you know, the same thing about her and Cat on Hot Tin Roof, that he didn't think she was giving enough in her performance. And I think it shows what a good actress she was, because when you could see it on screen, she was subtle. And I think that um, she just did things so instinctively because she'd been doing it for so long. Everybody in the movie was nominated for an Academy Award. There's no one in the movie that didn't get an Academy Award nomination. It's for Cat. No, for uh, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Oh, yeah. Both people in the movie. Yeah. There's a thing that she did that I love that uh, maybe people don't know about or never saw, but I just saw it when it was on, so I remember. She was on Here's Lucy, the, one of the incarnations yeah. of the in which uh, she's, uh, she, I can't remember how Lucy comes to be in possession of the diamond. She tries on the diamond ring and she can't get it off her finger. So then at the party, she has to stick her arms through Elizabeth's arms and 
Yes. Do that bit. And it's so funny. Elizabeth is hilarious in it. And Richard Blake yeah. was hilarious in it. I think Richard did not want to do that, as I recall. Uh, he he felt like they were kind of dumbing jump, dumbing down and they were becoming a little bit like Laurel and Hardy. You know, his idea was like, how many movies are we going to do together? How many TV shows can we do together? Like, we need to have our own um, identities. And I, I, she just loved him so much that I, I didn't realize that that relationship was so... Not one-sided, but I think, because I do think he loved her too, but it was just, she put up with a lot from him. And I think she would have married him a third time. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. 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 Uh, well, um, you, 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 you've had a career, um, Kate Anderson Brower, mostly in politics um, as a reporter and you were with Fox News for a while. What was that like? Uh, uh, um, it was a long time ago. It was 2005. It was different, you know, different time. I was, you know, it was my first, one of my first jobs coming out of college. So it was during like the Iraq war and we would be booking generals and things like that. I didn't, I was only there for a year because it wasn't really my politics. (laughs) Uh, so I got, I got kind of, um, I, I I was I was a booking producer too, so I was booking people to come on the show. It wasn't the most like intellectually challenging job I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was trying to get you on the show, but we just couldn't connect uh, when you when you wrote your book about the 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 president's the, the team of five, the president's club in the age of Trump. Oh, that's yeah. the one. Um, how how what is George? W. Bush think of Donald Trump? Well, he, <clears throat> he, uh, God, it's been a while since I've talked about that book. You're bringing back memories. Um, uh, he's not a fan, not a fan of Donald Trump's. And, you know, I interviewed Trump for the book in the Oval Office. It was so surreal. You did. And he said, come on in and yeah, him. I mean, at first he didn't seem to know what we were even talking about, which was kind of strange because it, <laughs> he thought we were talking about first ladies for a while. Um, but because I've written about first ladies, but then he did want to engage and talk about the other presidents and how he would fit in with them. Um, you know, I think he had, he liked to think of himself, you know, in this, he still does like to think of himself in this sort of more, uh, grandiose way as a former president. There's a certain level of, um, pomp and circumstance about the job that I think Trump really loved. Um, had, had, was that the first time you'd ever met him or had you met him before? Oh yeah. It was the first time I'd ever met him. And it was so um, surreal because the last time I had been in the Oval Office was when Obama, President Obama was in office. And so I had, was a reporter at Bloomberg News and we would go in for you know, media availabilities, they would bring in a bunch of reporters to, it, when you bring your tape recorder. And, um, but it felt so different. I mean, the, the place was the same, but everything about it was different, you know, um, which was interesting because I wrote a book called The Residence about the housekeepers and the butlers at the White House and the florists and this huge staff of people. They were all the same, you know, mm. it's like, there's some things about the house that, 
it's an interest. It's such a fascinating place because the whole tenor and tone of the house changes every four to eight years because the president and his staff changes. So, you know, looking around, it was Kelly and Conway and people like that, Hope Hicks and Sarah Sanders. And I was used to seeing, you know, Jay Carney and the other, the Obama folks. But the house itself can weather a lot of change and storms. And um, so it was interesting to go back. In, in, in President Obama's book, he talks about meeting the people who would serve him and, and how he felt about them and how they felt about him and, and his relationship with them, which is a very moving part of Obama's memoir. And I was thinking about those same people, how it felt when uh, President Trump arrived. I was thinking about them, too. And I've talked to some of them. It's interesting. I mean, everyone's afraid of losing their job, right, or not having their retirement. I mean, that was a genuine concern when I would interview people for that book. And I would assure them that the government is not going to take your retirement if you talk to a reporter. But they never signed NDAs at the time. And so they could talk freely. Um, but they still in the back of their, there was always that concern that maybe they would get in trouble. And I never wanted to be responsible for anything like that. Um, but for the Obamas, you know, it was so incredible to have a lot of the butlers are African-American and then to see the first black president, first lady. And they brought uh, one of the ushers, Reginald Dixon, to live with them and to take care of them uh, in the post-presidency, too. So it's it's a real legitimate relationship. And and some of them do like Trump. Some of them don't, but uh, they see it as a a job serving the presidency. And they don't see it as political in any way. Uh, Kate Anderson Brower, do you have a, a, you know, a prognostication? What do you think is going to happen uh, next? Uh, Do you think that President Trump will be elected a second time? Do you think that President um, Biden will be reelected? What do you think is going to happen? I would not wager to guess that. So much can change. I mean, Nikki Haley just announced today, right, that she's running. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know if Trump will even get the nomination. Um, he's got Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley. I think there's some other uh, Sununu. I mean, there's some people out there that could make it hard for him to even get that far. I think Biden will run and he will get the nomination for the Democrats. I mean, I don't think that's going to be an issue, but I I don't know. Are you seeing uh, where you live a lot of Trump supporters? It seems like it's waning for him. I I haven't seen any Trump supporters around here much, but, um, but I do hear people say they think that president Biden is too old, even though. Oh yeah. I hear that too. Yeah. Uh, Although I, I don't think. People do live a lot longer now. I know. And, you know, I I think he's still pretty sharp and he's surrounded by so many smart people. So, you know, I don't know. Well, uh, it's uh, there's a lot we could talk about, uh, Kate Anderson Brower. Maybe you'll come back and chat with me again sometime. Soon. I would love that. This book is really a, a, a marvelous uh, undertaking, and it is called Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon. And the author, the brilliant Kate Anderson Brower, thank you so much for spending some time with us on From the Bookshelf. Thank you so much, Gary. It was a pleasure. Kate Anderson Brower, she's the author of Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon. I'm Gary Shapiro. This is From the Bookshelf. 
And from the bookshelf contributor, Lissa Warren joins us now. She's the author of The Good Luck Cat, How a Cat Saved a Family and a Family Saved a Cat. She's been working in the publishing industry for more than 25 years, and she's the founder and president of Lissa Warren PR, which specializes in book and author publicity. She's also a professor at Boston's Emerson College, where she teaches in their writing literature and publishing program, and she's active on Twitter at Lissa underscore Warren. Lissa Warren, welcome back to From the Bookshelf. Thank you. It's nice to be with you again. What have you been reading? I have just finished The Butterfly and the Axe. It is a novel by a gentleman named Omer Bartov. It's published by Amsterdam Publishers. It came out in January of this year. In a remote Ukrainian village in the spring of 1944, a Jewish family is murdered. Who were they? Who were their killers? Why did this horrific incident take place? Three generations later, an Israeli woman and a British man of Ukrainian origin set out to find out how their families were implicated in this crime. They also discover how this untold murder has warped their own lives. The book is narrated by an unnamed historian, and it's based on fragments of memories, testimonies, diaries, letters, and even confessions. This novel seeks to fill the gap in the historical record of the Holocaust by reimagining those who were murdered and erased from memory. And it also sheds light on transgenerational trauma, which is not a term that I was familiar with before, but I've Googled it since, and it's a thing. Um, In the process, this challenges the conventional distinction between history and fiction. The author, Omer Bartov, is a professor of Holocaust and genocide studies. He's at Brown University in Providence. So he's an historian, um, but it is a novel. It is a work of fiction. It is his first English language novel, and it's really, really well done. And and was there a translator involved or he wrote it? He wrote it in English. He was educated in Israel and he's bilingual and, you know, fluent in Hebrew, but also in English. Um, You would never think that it was written by someone whose first language was not English. It's beautifully done. Hmm. Omer Bartov. Was that right? That's correct. The Butterfly and the Axe, which I think is a gorgeous title. Yeah. Yeah. The the, um, juxtaposition of those two. images in your head it's something that's it exactly that's what makes it so special yeah yeah all right that's on my list thank you for pointing that out what else of course so believe it or not i have another work of fiction with a holocaust theme this one Uh is called at the hour between dog and wolf it is a novel by tara eisen it's published by ig publishing it came out just last month actually in february This is a story of a 12-year-old Parisian Jewish girl in World War II France. She's living in hiding as a Catholic orphan with a family in a small village. When Danielle Martin's father is killed during the early days of the German occupation, her mother sends her to live in a quiet farming town in Vichy, France. Now called Marie-Jean Chantier, Danielle struggles to balance the truth of what's happening to her family and her country with the lies she must tell to keep herself safe. At first, she's really bitter about being left behind by her mother, and she is horrified at having to milk a cow and memorize Catholic prayers. But as the years pass and the occupation worsens, Danielle finds it easier to suppress her former life entirely, and Marie-Jean becomes less and less of an act. 
By the time she's 15 and there's talk amongst the now divided town of an allied invasion, not only has Danielle lost the memories of her father's face and the smell of her mother's perfume, but she has lost her very self. She transforms into a devout Catholic and an anti-Semitic fervent disciple of fascism. In the end, at the hour between dog and wolf shows how a vulnerable mind can be tragically re reshaped under the influence of extremist ideologies. The book is as thought provoking as it is beautifully crafted. Now, I've, I'm familiar with her name. She's written several novels, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. She is best known for her novel, A Child Out of Alcatraz. And that was actually a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, which is a pretty big award. Yeah. Um, and she is, you'll appreciate this being a movie buff as you are. She's yeah. the co-writer of a cult movie called Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Oh, yeah, of course. I've heard of that. Of course. Of yeah. course. Yeah, this is quite different than that, as you could probably glean from my description of it. Yeah, well, it's interesting. So you've got two books that are kind of both uh, related. Um, and sadly, uh, you know, although the Holocaust is in the past, you know, anti-Semitism and its rise is, uh, is in, in, the, in the present. Very much I heard it. Tara speak at Brookline Booksmith in Boston when she was uh -huh. in town about maybe two or three weeks ago. And someone in the audience asked her, you know, did you set out to write a novel that talks about the rise of fascism and how it can sort of permeate our lives? And she said, well, no, not when I started the novel. She started it, you know, a couple decades ago. But by mm. the time she had finished it, she's like, oh, my gosh, this totally resonates with today. Isn't so I know it's crazy. Who would have ever expected something like that? But That's there you have it. Yeah. Gosh. Uh all right. Um, anything uplifting? <laughs> but I well, mean, I guess maybe those books are not um, depressing. They're just uh, about. Uh, they're deep. They're deep. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, this this third one I brought you is is not light. I will be honest, but okay. it is exquisite. Um, it's called Twist, an American Girl. It is a memoir by Adele Berté. And it's published by Z Books, and it came out just this month, actually. It's brand spanking new, just hit bookstores. An original member of The Contortions and the creator of The Bloods, which is the first queer, out, all-woman rock band. Singer-songwriter Adele Berté's career spans decades and disciplines, and it's a who's who of the 80s underground. She performed and recorded for such artists as Culture Club, Whitney Houston, Sandra Bernhard, and many, many others. But her formative years bore little resemblance to her celebrity-studded adult life. In Twist, Berté recounts her troubled childhood in 1960s and 70s Cleveland, telling the story through the eyes of Maddie Twist, who is a stand-in for Berté herself. As she says in her alter about her alter ego in the author's note, I needed protection while taking this journey back through the war zones of my youth. The story begins with her beautiful mother whose delusions of grandeur bring both wonders and horrors to the home. Her mom was schizophrenic and the schizophrenia eventually leads to the removal of the children by Child Protective Services. And it begins the life that Maddie had, her harrowing journey. By her middle school years, Maddie Twist has moved through several foster homes and reformatories she ages out of the juvenile system eventually, and she finds herself navigating the world alone. And her only constant was music. She could sing, and she was certain it would be the beacon that would guide her toward another life. 
and it turned out that she was right about that. In frank prose without an ounce of self-pity, Twist is a story of learning to overcome trauma and to recognize and embrace yourself as a queer artist at a perilous time when being out meant you were under constant threat of ostracism and even violence. And in that way, it is triumphant. She truly does overcome. Um, she's the author of two previous books, one of which was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Awards, which is a very, very big book award in the gay community. Um, and she may have started off as you know, a singer, but boy, she's a, a wordsmith. She really, really is. It's, it's great. Well, it sounds good. You know, I was just talking with uh, uh, Kelly uh, Weil. She is a reporter for the Daily Beast. And mm -hmm. she wrote a really interesting book. And um, part of it, her book deals with uh, the current state of American politics and um, the rise of of hate, hatred and hate groups and so on in America. And I asked her about the rise of anti-Semitism and said, you know, is it time to move? And she said um, that it's much worse for LGBT right now. Yeah, yeah. It's awful right now. And it's not like it wasn't awful previously. Yeah. It's just yeah. more publicly awful now. Yeah. So that sounds like a really good one. Adele yeah. Berté. Is that how you say That's it? That's correct. Adele yeah. Berté. Twist. Yeah. And is she still an active uh, musical performer? She actually has some music coming out next month. So hmm. keep your oh. ears open. Well, um, what, what, under what? Stuff in the work. Under what title or how does she perform? I think she's releasing them as as singles herself, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I don't know the details, but I know that she has partnered with some really cool avant-garde of the moment folks and that it's her first music in quite some time. As far as I know, she doesn't have any performance dates scheduled, but I'm hoping that she'll go on the road and, and there'll be possibilities, opportunities to see her perform. She well, has like me, a four me, octave range or something like that. I mean, she just has wow. this amazing voice from, from what I've been told. She performed with Thomas Dolby and um, Brian Eno embraced her many years ago. I mean, she ran in some pretty impressive circles. Ah, cool. Well, um, let me know when her music comes out and we'll get her some airplay on KSQD. That would be so cool. She would love that, I'm certain. <laughs> Good. Um, anything else? Have you got another one for me? I do, actually. Um, so this one is you know, somber in its way too, but um, but a little bit lighter, a little bit lighter than the other three that I've talked about. It's called The Fine Art of Camouflage, and it is a memoir by Lauren K. Johnson. It's published by Millspeak Books, and it just came out this month. And Millspeak is a publisher of books about the military. I was not familiar with them until I read this book. Lauren K. Johnson is just seven when she experiences a sacrifice of war as her mother, a nurse in the Army Reserves, re deploys in support of Operation Desert Shield slash Desert Storm. A decade later, in the wake of 9-11, Lauren signs her own military contract and deploys to a small Afghan province with a non-combat nation-building team. Through her role as the team's information operations officer, the filter between the U.S. military and the Afghan and international publics, and through interviews and letters from her mother's service, Lauren investigates the role of information in war and also in interpersonal relationships. She examines the stories that we get from the media and from official sources, as well as the stories we tell ourselves and the stories that we tell our families. This is a powerful generation coming of age narrative and it's set against the backdrop of war. 
It brings us from a child watching her mother leave and return to a hero's welcome to a young idealist volunteering to deploy to Afghanistan who emerges war-worn and questions her place in the military and her family history all at once. Surprisingly, there's a lot of humor in this book. Um, Lauren even refers to herself as combat Barbie in places. <laughs> she just felt like so ill-equipped to be carrying a rifle and, you know, kicking down doors. Um, but she she did exactly that wow. while she was there. Pretty impressive lady. Very interesting. Well, so there's some really wonderful things. Now I have homework to do. <laughs> It'll be fun. It'll they be all fun sound, homework. They all sound like good books. They Thank are. Start with Twist. I think that one's probably most up your alley, if I had to guess. Uh, I'm, go- I'm going to. Good. Good, good, good. They're all awesome, though. Well, it's great that you find such interesting people to work with. Are you working with all of these people? I am in some capacity for each. And kind of neat backstories, Tara Eisen, the one who wrote At the Hour Between Dog and Wolf, she and I went to grad school together. We got our MFAs together like 20-some years ago. And Lauren, the one who wrote The Fine Art of Camouflage, she was an Emerson graduate. That's where I teach. And she Mm -hmm. was actually my intern like 10 years ago. So I, I... lucky to be in you know in the same waters as these gifted gifted writers so you got your mfa when you were nine yeah exactly precisely <laughs> you are great at math for a guy t- <laughs> talks about books all day you're really quite quite good with the abacus there <laughs> well listen warren uh thank you so much for visiting with us and sharing these books and i hope that you will come back and talk to us again really soon of course take good care That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and will come back and see us again next time. In the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf. And she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.